Listener supported. WNYC Studios. My whiteness allowed me to even be in a space where there was a certain amount of safety that I could even get angry where there is still some type of a protection within society that I could do that. To be seen and to be censored means, at the very least, your voice is being heard. I'm Helga Davis. Artist, author, and performer Karen Finley spoke with me about the foundation of her early work, how she's grown and changed in the time that has passed, and what she hopes to give her audience now. This is my conversation with Karen Finley. Hello, hi. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you and nice to meet you, too. Sometimes I'm a little bit like a racehorse <laughs> that's been held in a pen. I, um, I'm ready. I have a lot of that energy. And sometimes I think I need to just slow down a little bit so I don't miss anything about meeting you, about being able to see you, about looking at you, about taking you in. I'm just very excited more than anything else. When you said hello in the microphone, the first thing that popped into my mind was, wow, what record would we make? (laughs) I have no idea. Well, that would be fun to do. And I would look forward to trying to think what that project would be, and maybe it would be building on that, about the idea of being present, being in this moment, and just feeling the energy of of this day, and just us being here together. And maybe that is what we've all been trying to come in contact with, with this year that we've been through. But even beyond the year, Karen... What would you say that you've been trying to be in contact with? Well, first, that is such a beautiful question to be asked. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. Uh, So I'm I'm in that delight of being asked that question. (laughs) You know, so I'm going to indulge myself in that, yeah. (laughs) That is lovely, to have that sense, right, of... What am I in trying to be in contact with or to get to? I think that I'm looking above, and I think that I am trying to be in contact of something larger than myself, to have that sense of wonderment, or Mm -hmm. whether it's on a spiritual level, or this sense of creativity or contact or connection between people and places and being in time. And that energy that is beyond us, but yet with within us. When I'm being in my day is to have this sense of wonderment or joy within, but also to take the energy, if we can, to change what we can change and to have that sense of purpose. So that's now. How about back then, when you first started making things? When I was sitting down 
just now waiting to come and speak with you. The thing that I wrote on my little journal book, it says resistance culture. Mm. And maybe that's not a place that you put yourself in historically. But if we go back to this question of what it is that you were trying to make contact with in your early work, in your early self, what what was that? What were those things that you were you were trying to be in contact with? I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. And so I need a little time being the introvert and the Pisces that yeah, I am to be time. thinking about that. And I think that the contact is to be in communication, to connect, and that can be with soul, within heart. It can be also in looking out in a political reason. It can be in an emotional reason. It can be in dealing with speaking out Mm -hmm. in terms of whether it's trauma or also protection. What were the political things that you were looking to make contact with? Well, I think that with politics is human rights, whether it's going to be war, whether it's going to be women's rights, gender rights, civil rights, dealing with gender, dealing with violence, injustice. It doesn't have to be far away. And that is also what is important, to have a sense of directness, but kindness within the work, even when I am saying things and being very specific in what I'm doing, but to have it in in where I'm centered with what I'm saying. I think the other work in terms of um, trauma can be personal trauma, then being able to use that as a way to connect with others that the emotional state of being able to express emotions, express pain or rage, but then also to have a space for for joy and creativity and celebration, um, not to de- you know deny the human experience of of celebration. I like to mix that up. Yeah, that balance. I I think that part of the reason that I ask you the question too is because it's easy to look at some of the work you've done and say that you were only trying to provoke or that you were only angry or that you were only uh, interested in exorcising rage and trauma. And that that's a very, very superficial reading of not only what you were doing, but what it meant to do it when you were doing it. So that we not also lose a sense of of its historical context and and what it meant for you to be in those states of trauma and rage and artistic expression at the time that you that you were and that you still are and so i'm wondering if you could give some context around how you got on that path how it came to be, not because of what happened, 
but because of who you are and because of the time that you grew up in, that you became the person to say the things that you did in the way that you did. I'm interdisciplinary, and I work in the visual arts and I work in the performance art, but I was the named plaintiff in a case that went to the Supreme Court in terms of indecency and in terms of funding. My work where I would use my body and language, that means that I would sometimes use some nudity, but my my words were uh, about rape, about sexual violence, about um, racism, about AIDS. It would be about uh, reproductive rights. And I would tell stories or scenarios about about uh, individuals, but I think that when I was doing my work at this certain time in history, and since we're bringing a historicalness to my work, is that I would also use the voice of the perpetrator. And so that was at that time unusual, that I would be taking on that voice as you know a woman taking on the male voice. So I would take on that power, um, the patriarchy, and I would really kind of go against the type. And at my age at that time, and within my whiteness or the expected ingenue terms of the appearance, I actually went out to destroy that, to have myself be, um, you know, messy or to use abjection within my own self, because that's what I was doing, that the female was to be expected to be hysterical. So I would become more hysterical and I would use that anger as a platform. And I think that I wasn't alone in terms of using anger. Um, and I I was uh, influenced by radical feminists that were creating work before I was in terms of with their writing. Right, and talking about anger, whether that's going to be Andrea Dworkin or Audre Lorde, who wrote about anger. And at the time when I started creating work in the late 70s, when I was at school, uh, there were really very, very few women professors or women represented in the museum context. You were not given that opportunity to be you know, the artist. So things have changed. <laughs> but at that time, that would have been considered more radical. I don't think that what I was doing then, it was about its time. And what I was doing there at that time for speaking for people, I would do that now. But at that time, I also had my advantage, my privilege. Mm -hmm. But my whiteness allowed me to even be in a space where there was a certain amount of safety that I could even strip or to even get angry where there is still some type of a protection within society that I could do that. And so I took that and I took it for all that I could. I think I have more awareness of, of that now, but I also feel that coming into New York or being an artist and claiming that space in terms of my class and also the way my body and the representation of my body. I feel that I was part of a colonial 
is um, occupation, of going into neighborhoods such as the East Village. I think that also I am part of this blame of a certain gentrification of neighborhoods where I realize now that there was a sense of putting uh, kind of art market work above cultural creative capital that were was already present within neighborhoods and that um, my my white generation took advantage of in this idea of for art. And so that is part of my history as well. And in terms of the lawsuit with three other artists who are gay and lesbian, and I was the name plaintiff and the other uh, grants were denied based on decency. And it was an eight-year case. But sometimes you win by losing. And we really did, if you want to say, suffer. I think the other artists suffered more than I did um, because Mm -hmm. of them being gay and lesbian. And that I, in some way, that the press uh, heralded me uh, to look at me at this certain way as this exception. But something that I really realized is that I was very privileged to be able to be in a position to even be censored. That in this particular situation, my voice actually seemed to have some matter or credence to want to silence. It was that important, right. Mm -hmm. Where there are many other voices that would never even have that opportunity or platform. And I think that that really is based on racism. And it is kind of a way to use me, but at the same time uh, that I was be giving this recognition. Right. You became dangerous. (laughs) Yes, I did. Because we might all start getting ideas (laughs) about what we could talk about or the ways in which we would not be. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me. Terrence McKnight for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. Controlled. Where did you come from? (laughs) Um, I went to school in San Francisco. Um, I grew up in Chicago and in Evanston. Uh, music was very important to me. My father was in music. I did start going to clubs very, very early. And I, I think that I still think of creating work in a musical way. You have brothers and sisters? Yes, I do. I ha- I'm the eldest of six. Wow. And uh, I was allowed to be artistic um, and that was encouraged. I think also at that time, too, is children were left more on their own and in their own devices. <laughs> uh, so I could have my imagination. It really was, it was, there wasn't that kind of helicopter kind of a sense about things mm-hmm. for children and young people. You could be out and you could have your privacy, and that was respected. And I don't think that 
that is respected as much now. You know, you you had to find your own sense of privacy when you're living with many people. And that's why you have an imagined life. You can have a creative life within oneself. And so I was able to have that. Where did you go in that imagined life? It could be just going past a window and just seeing, you know, imagining a little imagined secret garden somewhere or that you look at a tree or you just look going through the alley and you see one weed growing in the crack of a sidewalk. The sky, all those things, and also the sound of human activity is just gives me so much glee. I love to hear humans just gathering and talking and being and, and making lots of noise. I love hearing cars when people are having their music real loud. I like to do that too, and just being and making yourself known and present. So you have these five other humans who are kind of depending on you and looking up to you. When you started to make your work, what did they what did they feel about what you were doing? Um, I started very young, kind of performing and being with people that were older than myself. Um, actually, one of my earliest performances, I think my father was a drummer and he was drumming, but I don't think I was ever questioned or ever made to feel embarrassed for what I was doing. And when I was going to the San Francisco Art Institute, the way that I supported myself to get through college, I worked at a burlesque house. I really loved the respect or the performance of the the body, primarily the female form. And each part of the female body, instead of it being a perfection, certain attributes of you know the body would be um, expressed. It could just be the hands. It would be the neck. It would just be the leg. It could be the cleavage, but it, it wasn't this sense of this um, hourglass, uh, you know, image of the female form. And I really, really, really learned a lot from that. And to have this environment where there is also the respect for the body desire the body. It's always looked at in this binary uh, in terms of desire and uh, femininity, you know, mother whore, things like that. So that's something that I wanted to put in my work too. So you were using what you've identified as your privilege to challenge assumptions about what you, what women, what citizens can say, how they can say it, what's art, uh, what is freedom? What about pleasure? How did Karen Finley cultivate her own pleasure? Oh, that's, that's so beautiful. No, I just was responding because I've never been asked that question before. And you've asked me now several questions that I've never been asked before. 
right now I'm feeling pleasure because I'm being asked that and it's delighting me. I think that I'd like to remove the shame. Helga, in our conversation when you first asked me about the contact, I really didn't completely know. I mean, I almost feel kind of like teary, but I'm feeling a real energy in the top part of my, from my elbows up. And you help me because I think that that's what I want for my audience. That's the contact I want, is to remove the shame or to release the shame. Yeah. Are there things that you do every day that every person can do to to get in touch, to, to settle down, to to go in before going out? I have to sit. I have to stop. Mm-hmm. The transition space is as important as the place of being there. And that's where the ideas actually come. The other one is, is to have space where you're doing nothing. You're not wasting time. You're just being there. Having like to have this sense where it's like nothing. I just listen to music. And the other is to allow the communication of enchantment and symbolism, not to have to wait to go to sleep for your dreams. And that was my conversation with Karen Finley. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda, which includes some explicit language and isn't suited for young listeners. From Grabbing Pussy by Karen Finley. Pussy, speak out. Men, pay attention. When we say no, we mean no. Do not push your body on any of us. Rape, violations, assaults, hotel sex crimes, hidden, kept secret harassment, assault disguised as job interview, 30 years of abuse, try 3,000, over 90 accusations with just one Harvey. Every woman doesn't expect this to happen in her lifetime, but it happens to every single woman repeatedly, guaranteed, intergenerationally, spoken between women, mothers to daughters to granddaughters, amongst friends. We are taught how to use your body at times, to feign interest till you get to safety, a pause in his release. How to disembody, disassociate as you are raped, Taught to forget yet remember and hold the pain and fear, the shame. 
hating your body, yet the desire is abjection, held as object, trained and groomed. Grab them by the pussy, a president's war cry, whether Bill or some other friendly neoliberal or some conservative cock. It's like eating a chicken sandwich, takeout, power of pussy. Harvey handlers and enablers to keep your jobs enforcing silence for another slobbering box of popcorn for some other film, probably made and directed by a man, where man gets girl, turning down the sheets to get to the script, appearing naked, coaxing young women to overpower intimate, grabbed encounters, massage explicit messages with oil and motion. It never stops with a back rub. Keep me safe. Manipulation, fearing, retaliation, embarrassment, pain, rape, sob, sobbing, distraught, locked in a van, in a room, a job, on a desk, an office, a car, get the pillow to his room, bathroom, disturbed, angry, take me out of here, let me go, no, 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 pausing, passing out here, you are here, help me, I... Together we stand, band together in solidarity. Women unite. Oh, hello, young beauty. Here is your predator, one powerful male producer. Known as the Hollywood system, a systemic industry thin and full of Botox and cleavage to force his hairy self. You are perfect for the upcoming role, a rag doll. No one stopped him. No one from the company. No one from the board. No one, no one never stopped too much money, too much power to be made. Not too bad. Put up with it. Sign a non-disclosure clause while he's giving money to a liberal cause. Mr. Weinstein, known for outbursts, tirades, explosions, private and public pounding, but it was the particular female that he enjoyed the most and gave of his most personal self, hurting the most vulnerable young woman, a female who wanted, who had ambition, who desired to work, had talent. He was brutal and shaming and punishing this woman for her desire to be an actress, to work in the field, written off as just another form of toxicity, coercive bargaining to keep quiet and maybe a chance at a script, for the hopeful actress meeting with God as devil might generate a deal, an opportunity, a chance to be part of what you had trained for, but first you had to do them, penetrated, sucked, licked or eaten. It was never your choice. The pain is so bad to keep your soul from slipping, so you clutch to whatever dream you can salvage in this nightmare as he enters as you cry out. Harvey ejaculates, feeling her fear that then transforms his power to prove he is a man. He is in charge and takes her power. He has the plan. I will force myself eat you and you eat me, for it is a dog-eat-dog world. I'm so ugly, so ugly, but you will eat this ugly. Ram it down your throat. You won't have anything like me. There's no way out. There's only a way in. I despise women. I hate women for I want them and I am so ugly that I can only force myself on them for fear of rejection. They only want one thing. They are actress whores. And all this to make a moving image. 
where we can all sit in a darkened theater, together in the dark, left alone, survivors, left in the dark. Oh, that's entertainment. It's not just the ravishing actress on stage or screen, for it is in all walks of life and career. A woman poses a risk to herself. Her body is dangerous, a potential target of attack. She presents by her presence. At all times, everywhere and anywhere, the male has the dominion to punish and beat and violate and touch. A passionate, uncontrollable rage. Her body pushes him to the edge. He is built that way. He can't help himself. That is how men are. We know your life, your body has value, women. You speak truth. You aren't lying. You aren't bringing this on. You didn't dress this way. You weren't expecting this. Wherever you work and live, whatever you do, whoever you are, women unite. We won't stand and be raped, groped, abused, mocked, and violated. Women, girls, females, identified trans people deserve to be treated with dignity. Your body is yours. Respect our body. This body is mine. It is not here for you. The time has come for female empowerment. We won't be ridiculed and our bodies occupied for your benefit. No more codes of silence. No more silence. Pussy, speak out. <laughs>